You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Guinea pig. Just couldn't get it together today. What entails a guinea pig suit? You have my a full like son- head to toe guinea pig suit? Yeah. My son wanted to be a guinea pig for Halloween last year. Wait, and you can fit in it? No, but I can put it over my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so wasn't there a punitive damages for you not dressing up today? I feel like we came up with a punishment. <laughs> wasn't I gonna quit the podcast? Something really serious? This just in. Benny yeah. quits. Going out track is over. Can't do it, man. Brad looks like a norm. Ruin people. This is bullshit. I signed up for something else. <laughs> man. So how's it going out there, man? Yeah, same, you know. Just, Trudging uh, right along. Yeah, yeah. Just uh beach life in um in Cancun. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> How's your uh, yeah. Spanish doing? Oh, muy bien. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm flowing, man. See. You know, it's all about immersion, Brad. You know, <laughs> you just got to get down there, really dig dig your heels. In. Oh, shit, I gave up my location. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. And oh, and good... it is. Yeah, it's Cinco de Mayo, isn't it, as yeah, we dude. speak today? We're going to have that. some Cinco de Mayo celebrations here, too. I was wondering, I brought this up on the tune-up, that, like, what do you think the percentage of people in Florida today wearing Corona board shorts, like a good, like 10% of the population <laughs> in Corona board shorts today. Yeah. To be fucking, yeah. yeah. But they're, but drinking are they those, out? What are those things people drink? They are drinking white claws. They're going to be drinking white claws <laughs> with their Corona board shorts on. That's what I just think is happening down it's, there. It's um, but it's also Taco Tuesday, dude. It's like a double whammy. I know it's so crazy. <laughs> How much more white appropriation can you have on a totally legitimate thing than hey, that? Oh my god! It's like goodness. you know, it's it's um, it's our version. It's like it's St. Patrick's Day for Mexico. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I could do without either. Yeah, well, <laughs> I prefer Halloween. Moderation, but, moderation. So, you know, it's funny about this interview we did. I forgot to tell you something. What? And I forgot to tell Danny something that was funny since I so obtrusively started the interview talking about cancer. Uh, oh. 
Eh, laugh now. Um, but, you know, this family, the Frasers I brought up, this yeah. famous Tom's River, New Jersey family. Like, so, you know, when I was a kid and Tom's River won the world, the Little League World Series, this is like a big deal for New Jersey. You know, it's never happened. Right. And the star of the team was this like chubby teenage kid named Todd Frazier. Uh, and. You know, years later, I start working at Rutgers and I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's dad is the coach. This is like this royal family of baseball. And by that time, Todd Frazier was very good and he was about to become a pro. And then Gaslight starts and I hear this story that Alex Levine, the bass player from Gaslight, played Todd Frazier his senior year of high school in baseball because he was a very good Ooh, baseball player wow. and he was on like an all county team or something like that right. and played Todd Frazier. And so I was like really excited. I'm like, Oh my God, you played like a professional baseball player. Like, how was it? Was he cool? He's like, he was not cool. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh no, he was a dick. He's like, kind of a dick. And I'm like, fuck. Uh. And then it took like two years later because Todd Frazier comes off like a pretty nice guy, uh, honestly. And it comes out like two years later. He's like, you know what? I think that guy was probably fine. He was just so much better than all of us and, <laughs> and like knew it and was acting accordingly that we all just hated him because of that. But he probably wasn't that bad of a guy, right, you know, right. but pretty funny story to wrap it around with with the Frasers and the fact that I guess Danny was. A little rock and roller who would cast dispersions on the other phrases. Hilarious. hilarious. Funny town though. Um that is that is a good anecdote, you know, and I um I do want to put a I wanna say before we get too far into this, that like to I I found a really awesome I mean I've seen some of Danny's stuff before and I knew some of the iconic things that he'd done, but dude, sure. His catalog is deep, man. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. going to post the link. I found this one website that's got some really tasteful shots. So cool. just look for it. And maybe we'll put it in the social media because I couldn't just take my eyes off some of these pictures. Yeah, I know. He takes some shots like, um, you know how the like the Johnny Cash video where he covered yeah, hurt? Yeah, exactly. You know, that super close up where you can just see this face yeah. like i feel like he got to that point like like those john prine photos and stuff are yeah. just like they're stunning you can just like you feel like you know the person just by looking it, yeah. it really is it's just it's, it's tactile photography yeah you can see the artistry right like yeah you know it's and it, it's something to say for it i mean we talked about it in this interview but you know a lot of times i've shown up to a you know a photo shoot where the person just had like they really didn't have any idea. You know what I yeah. mean? Mm -hmm. Essentially, they were a person with like a good personality who could frame something and take 500 digital shots and hope that they salvage a couple out of it, you yeah, know? Yeah. And there's just such a, when you work with some of the older people and the people a little more, you know, skilled in their craft, I should say, like, you can see that they're carrying out something that's already in their head, you know, like, like they think of an artist and they think of the way that artist wants to be seen and they know how to execute it. But it's not just, you know, throwing throwing arrows at a dartboard. It's it's very, like you said, tactile. Yeah. And he also, it's funny because, you know, a lot of photographers really capture these sort of like really artistic images or portraits, which he has tons of. I mean, his stuff is yeah. 
really artistic. But then like what blew me away is that he also has some of these just like these awesome moments, like whether it's like backstage or like from an angle right, of the stage right. that like you and I have seen, this is one thing that I've always been looking for and I never see enough of it, which is like photographs that remind me of what it feels like to be mm. on the road or sure, to be, sure. you know what I mean? Like you just don't see, you just don't see the details, I guess. And I think, and he's got a few pics like that, that I'm just like, Oh yeah, yeah. That's, I know how that, I know where that is, man. I know right, how that yeah. feels. And that's why I was asking him so much about kind of his his, you know, uh, mental plan almost when he's going into it, because in order to get photos like that, you really need to be like a fly in a wall. You need yeah. to be extremely well liked, but also while being easy to ignore. Right. You know what I mean? Like they have to sit in a room and they have to make you feel totally comfortable, not on edge. Uh, but also be like, uh, you know, distant enough that you don't feel like you're putting it on for him. And that, that is really like a skill. I feel like uh, half of the great music photographers are just like really cool people who kind of just know how to like sit in a room and uh, and get people to feel the right way to, to, yeah. to get what they want. You know, no, that's it's, definitely it's true. Whole nother skill. They're puppet masters. Probably. <laughs> I bet Danny has. Books and books on human psychology. Right. How to how to elicit a smile from a grumpy man. Or like something like that. <laughs> well, like, there's rhythm too that just comes with the experience when you you know in those scenarios when certain shots are gonna happen, you know? Um Right, right, right. I, I just I mean I just you know, I remember from back in the day that we would so many times, you know, the label or somebody would send out this high priced photographer who would miss every shot. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yep. And then a friend of the band would would come away right. the next day and be like, "Check this out, dude! I got you like in mid fucking split, like in the air, like." And you're like, "Yo, dude!" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The label just yeah. paid this clown a thousand bucks to get nothing. Well, that I mean, you just basically detailed the music industry in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah. Someone gets a thousand dollars to do it. Nothing. But like, it's, but I realize it's rhythm, you know, like this person had seen the band and knew right. when certain things were happening, but there's more yeah. than just rhythm to like an actual set. It's like rhythm to like when somebody's going to get off the stage or get on the stage, just kind of right. being there. And like with that much experience, you learn where you learn those spots and those places. Yeah. Actually an old, like uh, drum tech, and tour manager for Gaslight, a guy named Scotty Anna, posted some photos recently of old Gaslight stuff and then sent us some personal ones. And that kind of, I think, encapsulates what you were talking about, because he was literally on the road with us. He saw every single day, like, what your routine is before you go on, how you go on, when you go on, like, knew these parts of the set that were particularly climactic or something, and people really got into yeah. it. So, yeah, there is... You know, and that's why maybe he's so great at shooting people like Bruce. Like he's how many Bruce Springsteen concerts has Danny Clinch been to? Right. You know, and like I'm sure he knows. Like, oh, Bruce is about to do this thing here, and that's pretty fucking cool. Better right. get it, you know. Yeah. So a lot of that is just you got to be a real fan too, and you got to like right gotta know what's going on. The fan aspect can definitely not be like ignored for sure. Yeah, and that's when same as an interview or same as uh, taking a photo. I mean, if you run into someone who obviously has like limited engagement with your work or, you know, did a quick Google search before they <laughs> met you. And it's super obvious, like you don't want to give as much to people like that. You know, it's, that's yeah. just human nature. 
And if someone comes in, they're like, oh, my God, your second album and this guitar bar and this song. And you're like, oh, that person's dead. I mean, I mean, maybe it's ego stroking. I don't know. I'm sure that's part of it. but It's all good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Listen, musicians need no ego stroking. They're all <laughs> secure enough in themselves that they can navigate through life without any oh, yeah. outside validation. Absolutely. Yeah. They're fine. <laughs> They're fine. But I do want to talk about more about the Asbury Lanes. I feel remiss about that. But this is already a long intro. So why don't we get into the interview? I'm going to talk about it after. Okay, let's go. All right. It's going on. Now, how yeah, you doing, yeah. man? Where, where are you at right now? Uh, I'm at home in New Jersey on the shore. Good. Um, close to the ocean. Uh, near the water is nice, uh, and uh, I appreciate the fact that I can I can look out at the water all the time. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you seen that film, The Lighthouse, yet by any chance? No. All right. I mean, after you see it, I'm just saying I've been at an undisclosed beach location this whole time. I'm talking about sure. it on podcast, but I don't want anyone to know where I am. So I yeah. could be I could be in. Uh, and I found out in another podcast I did that apparently there's seagulls at the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the lakes in Wisconsin. So now I could truly be anywhere. But you could. But that movie, The Lighthouse, I you know I never saw seagulls a certain way until this movie, and now you know I hear them like crow behind me, and I'm like moving my neck like a squirrel. And <laughs> sea- seagulls have become real ominous to me after this film. Be careful after you. Oh, watch it. Uh, you're the second person to recommend that. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's super. I heard hit- beautifully yeah. shot right it's beautiful yeah it's um yeah. apparently it was all done on 35 millimeter not only that mm. but also black and white 35 millimeter where it was done mm. you know uh naturally instead of in post which i yep. had read needed to basically flood the set with light you know to expose it <sighs> enough to make it show up a certain way so yeah. it's, it really is beautiful and pretty stunning to watch it's very strange it'll take you on a bit of a journey yeah, cool. But, I'm gonna check it. But you're I have from, some time. You're from South Jersey. <laughs> Things are weird, anyway, right? Oh yeah, weird New Jersey. Come on. So I didn't know that you were a straight Tom's River cat until yeah. I started getting into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight up. Now, for, for someone from my neck of the woods, Tom's River was really only known for two things, which was a cancer cluster when I was a kid. Sure. Yep. Which I think there's truth to that, right? And can I name the other one? Yeah, lay it on me. Uh, World Series, Little League World Series champs. That's right. And the and the entire Frazier family to begin with, which I was True. C- curious if you've had any connection to those to those ones in your years I, in the town. I have a funny connection. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, Maria, lived um, right next door to the family. Oh, and really? Yeah, so I would go over there when I was a kid, when when we were dating, and uh, I'd show up and three three boys outside, always outside, always yeah. playing sports. Sure. Um, and uh, and they would always ask, you know ask me what my name was, and I would just tell them my name was Charlie Brown. Um, <laughs> so they would always call me Charlie Brown <laughs> and stuff. So I mean, I hope for- I run into him one of these days. 
Well, yeah, they're probably much bigger now. Um, to, <laughs> to anyone you know who who doesn't know Tom's River, New Jersey, we're discussing the Fraser family. Who the father uh, was a the father of the Little League World Series baseball team, uh, whose son went on to play at Rutgers and become a professional baseball player, Todd Frazier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the dad is also. Uh, the head coach uh, for Rutgers baseball. So this is sort of like a legendary local family. I mean, simply we, you know, New Jersey getting a little league world series was exciting at the time. Yeah. I think they did it twice. Did they call you Charlie? Like, like, were you fucking with them when you were calling yourself Charlie Brown? Like, look at these jocks kind of deal. Nah, I was just like, I love, I love kids and I love messing with people and I just (laughs) get it from my father. You know, I love it. So, in in Tom's River, you know, I imagine you, you graduated what early eighties, eighty two. So you were a, a a kid down around the Jersey Shore in the late seventies during high school. Yeah, can you paint a picture for me? Of what was going on for you, and and what was going on in uh, in the scene as far as music and stuff was concerned at the time? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood called Bellcrest and um, it had a pretty rough reputation. Um, And uh, I was just right in the middle of it. I was in high school. I was the type of person that tried uh, to get along with everyone. Like I had friends. Uh, I was, I was, I played sports. I was um, on the soccer team and I was on the swim team. Our soccer team won in my senior year. We won group four South Jersey Nice. Um, which was really fun to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. But I also hung out with like, you know, the burnouts, quote unquote. <laughs> right. Uh, so I had friends on each side and, and in the middle. And, you know, I, I kind of like grew up with parents that never really judged anybody and treated everybody the same way, regardless yeah. of who they were. And so uh, it allowed me to get along with uh, all sorts of people. Um, so I was you know, uh, as a youngster, uh, my musical influences were my best friend, uh, Mickey, they were his, his brother and sister, uh, who were older than us. And they were listening. She was listening to Jackson Brown. Okay. Um, she was listening to Cat Stevens and his brother, Billy was listening to, um, you know, Bob Seger, Springsteen, the Almond brothers. Okay. Um, you know, uh, Warren Zevon, and stuff like that. So Very cool. we were getting into that stuff. And then, you know, of course, growing up in the seventies, you know, for us, it was, um, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young and like Neil Young and, and, um, trying to think of, you know, but certainly Bob Seger, we were big Bob Seger fans. Nice. Um, and a couple of the kids in the neighborhood were big Ted Nugent fans. And okay. I, I mentioned that because what happened for me, um, was that, the first music venue that I was really able to go to, nobody really was taking me to see music. There was nobody, um, you know, uh, my other influences was my father's, um, eight track player. And he had like two eight, eight track cassettes and, you know, and they were both, uh, you know, songs of the fifties, you know, so it was Elvis, the big bopper, buddy Holly, you know, stuff like that. And, um, so I was listening to a lot of that sort of early, uh, 50s rock and roll which you know carl carl perkins and all that so i had that going for me and um so i started to you know take photographs when i was younger my mom was always um had a camera and uh and i decided that 
you know, I liked photography as well. And so I picked up a camera and I liked art and photography and, you know, um, and I started to take my um, camera to shows that I went to. And the first place that opened up was uh, around here for us was um, Six Flags Great Adventure. Oh, shit. And, and they had concerts there. Ah, yeah. And okay. I feel like one of the very first concerts I went to was just because there was, there was a concert there and it was uh, the Charlie Daniels Band. <laughs> and so I this was there. Charlie Daniels band at Six Flags in Jackson, New Jersey. Correct. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> this is all stuff I've rarely talked about, actually. I mean, this the Charlie Daniels band, I think. But um, you know, then uh friends of mine, um some friends of mine that uh that loved Ted Nugent. And I remember Ted was playing at Six Flags Great Adventure. Okay. And so I went and it was like spandex, uh, Ted right, Nugent. Right. Okay. That era. And, yeah. And I went and I took photos and I came oh. back home and I went to the one hour photo and I, and I made like, you know, the $10 or maybe at the time it was a $5 poster size photo cool. of Ted Nugent. <laughs> and I sold it. I sold it to my friends and to, the two Ted heads as we call them in the neighborhood. And that was like my first photo sale, you know? Yeah. Uh, Quick on, what did you shoot it on? Was it like a click and shoot? Like, what did you have? um, You know, at the time I had uh, (laughs) this, this friend of mine across the street was like one of those kids that like when he was, you know, 11, he had a job. I don't know what he was doing. I'll have to ask him because I still see him. Okay. Like he, he had a job and he was out, he was working, working, working. And he went out and like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I want to play guitar. Like, I, I just want to play guitar. And he like, he went out and he like bought a guitar and a little amp and stuff. And we would all play it and stuff. And then he was like, I want to take photos. And he went out and he bought uh, a camera, like a nice 35 millimeter, a Pentax K1000, okay. which is like the standard. Um, this the standard inexpensive 35 millimeter you know manual everything manual focus manual light meter everything and okay. um and he bought the camera and he never you know he it was a fad he like he used it for a little bit and then he, he never was using it and i was like yo steven uh let me borrow that camera you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh and he loaned it to me and of course i just never gave it back and uh i i just um you know i was using that at the time i love that you had the instinct right away too, to print out some glossies and get them out there. It's like, it's like you're born for this. It's crazy. I'm like, yeah, I just made a couple of bucks. I like this. Yeah. Was there anything, um, you know, was there anything going on in, in Asbury in that area yet? Uh, you know, for um, you? not, not so much for me. I, I have to say, uh, I, I am a little disappointed that I had no sort of person in my life that was, you know, just, you know, obsessed with music and right, wanted right. to bring me along, you know, sure. um, I would, I just basically, you know, my friend's brother did take us to see, um, Springsteen back in the day. And he took us to see Bob Seger cool. when we were younger. And then we started going on our own. And for us, for us, it was Philly. Um, right. it was basically, yeah. you know, get on route 37, you know, and head West, and you're in Philadelphia. It's just one road all the way all the way through. Yeah, and to uh, people who don't know it, that is one of the like darkest, creepiest roads in New Jersey too. That, that it, it really <laughs> to is. get from the Jersey Shore to Philadelphia, uh, you're all of a sudden in in uh, 
in like the scene in the Sopranos when they're lost in yeah. uh in the marshlands, you know, Pine Barrens, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like it is it is creepy, and you know what? It hasn't really changed no, too much. No, you know, exactly. it's still two lanes. You know, it's the I, only I way mean, to get across. We often talk about, and I, and I think it's I think it's still that way. But when back in the day before the roads were, you know, I'm, I'm sure they've been paved quite a few times since I was a kid, but they were slabs of cement that were put, you know, so there was like uh, in between, it was, you know, like a, like a, a sealer in between each slab of cement. So when you drove down the road, it was bump, 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 bump. Bum, 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 <laughs> like the whole way, you know, it was weird. Uh, that's creepy. So that's people creepy. will know that, you know, people, people will know that, uh, that story, but, uh, but yeah, you know, and then I started getting my, making my way into, um, to shows every show I went to, I took my camera. Um, I would, you know, I would hand, you know, somebody a lens, I would take the camera body and shove it down my pants. Right, I'd give right. my girlfriend a pile of film and then we would go into the show. Uh, I would collect all my stuff and I would sneak down in the front and take pictures, you know? Now, um, was your inspiration early on? Was it more like, you know, curiosity capturing a moment or were you like trying to get some good photos to sell at the time? It was more just sort of like a, like a, like a curiosity and like, you know, I'm going to these shows. I love music. I love photography and I love the challenge of getting up in front. Like I, I didn't, you know, and it was really, it was just kind of like a little obsession I had. And, you know, when, when my parents started to ask me, you know, when you get to be eight, you know, 17, 18, and they're like, what do you want to do? You right. know, what's your plan? I said, um, you know, well, I want to look into this photography thing and see, see how I do. And so I went to Ocean County College. Cool. Um, here in New Jersey. And, um, and I took, you know, uh, visual communications, which had a photography darkroom class. It had oh, cool. two dimensional design and all that stuff. And I basically, um, just wanted to see how I did for myself and, you know, in sort of my own little competition with the other kids in the class to see if sure. I had some chops and, uh, and I liked it. I, I really liked it. And there was, you know, there was um, one other person there who I thought was really talented and I had, you know, hoped that I was, and I was just, I decided that I would then, uh, you know, further my education in photography and ended up going to New England School of Photography in Boston. Right. And, um, and just, you know, it was a two year uh, class, you know, where you got a certificate. It wasn't like, um, I did look into School of Visual Arts and Brooks Institute of Photography and RIT and all that. And that stuff was very intimidating to me okay. as a young blue collar kid who's nobody in their family had gone really to college. Sure. Um, uh, just like you know, a little too, a little too foofy academic, like it kind of felt like. I think so. And I, I just, yeah. I know, I remember going to school of visual arts in New York and, and seeing like all these hipster kids, <laughs> right, you know, right. <laughs> and like everything looked really intimidating to me. And I went to New England school of photography and I went in there and there were like people that looked like me and the dark rooms were like, weren't perfect. They were really worn right, in right. and really, you know, and I was like, yeah, this is my spot. That's cool. Uh, and so I went there and of course there was a good music scene there. Uh, yeah, what was well. going? So you were in Boston. What was that like? You know, uh, it was early eighties, like eighty four, eighty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, was eighty four, eighty five. What's um, going on up there? Some cool Aerosmith stuff at the time. Um, like you that? know, it was. Um, there was a band called Rick Berlin, the movie that I really loved. They were like a. They were kind of like the Talking Heads. Oh, cool. Um, 
and it was a big band, um, like a large band of of really interesting people and artists. And, um, you know, uh, it was my first introduction to having some gay friends, um, and they were just really artful and just, I really just had a great time. Uh, they helped me like sort of cut my teeth and let me go in and, you know, document what they were doing. And I, and I did it for my school classes too, but the Del Fuegos were happening, a band called three colors, a band called, um, um, new man. Uh, what else was out there till Tuesday? If I didn't say that, uh, a band called, um, you know, um, like extreme, Aerosmith, of course. Um, you know, and then they had great clubs there like the paradise and the rat. Right. And, uh, you know, you could catch some really cool bands there and stuff. But, um, I, I got a real soft stop for extreme, by the way. Danny, wasn't there a street where all the bands had like lofts and rehearsed on in Boston? Yeah. Was it, was it Newberry street? I, I don't know. Well, Newberry was the hipster street, like where they, it was Newberry Comics, and there was a lot. It was kind of like it was like where everybody rehearsed, right? They had like lo- rehearsal. Yeah, lofts. I can't remember. I can't remember where that was. Well, if, if any New Englanders in their forties happen to be listening to this, <laughs> why don't you hit us up with this information? I would. I'd be curious was, to know too. I like yeah. how every city, you know, like every you know every city yeah. scene always had. A street or a place or a group of people that were yeah. you know, bringing it together. I love I love hearing those yeah. stories. Yeah, I remember one of the things I loved about um, Boston uh, was certainly the music scene. There was, like I said, I said the Paradise. There was the Channel. There was um, this club Narcissus, and then there was there was all sorts of crazy, you know, different clubs and and stuff to see music. But I also at late at night, um, you know, the bars closed at like two, which is kind of early you know, when you're that age and you're yeah, running yeah. around and, and we would go to, there was a Chinese restaurant there. And you, if you went there and ordered some food and you asked for cold tea, the guy, the waiter would bring you out a brown paper bag with a six pack of beer <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yes. and you could continue to drink. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Uh, what, how was the yeah. food? Food was good. Uh, the the food i don't know yeah good, it was two enough. o'clock in the morning yeah, good we enough. yeah just, <laughs> so how did you know so sort of the next thing on your resume is sort of a really impressive thing that jumps out of you how did you go from you know shooting bands in, in boston at school to to interning for annie Leibovitz? well um so i came back in between you know going to school in the summers and I did, um, I was a lifeguard on the beach in nice. Seaside Park. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, Ortley Beach and Seaside Park. You and must then, have been in great uh, shape, huh? I was. I was just a skinny guy, though, you know, but okay. I was in good shape. <laughs> yeah. Especially when I was swimming in high school, right. I was in the best shape of my life. Like, yeah, I, yeah. there's a photo of me that I always look back on that's in a scrapbook. It's like I was in the newspaper or something and I had won a, a race or whatever. And I just, I was like, damn, look at those broad shoulders. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. man, I like, I had like, you know, the smallest percent of body fat I'll, I will ever have. <laughs> uh, and, and it was fun. Yeah, it, it was cool. Uh, and so I did that. And I also worked at, um, when I finished school, I was working at a, um, I'd become obviously friends with the one hour photo. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, uh, a guy named George and Jack Belusky own this one-hour photo in uh, the Bellcrest Plaza on Fisher Boulevard, and 
I would, um, I'd go in there all the time and he, 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 it was a great guy. And I still, we still talk to this day and he was always been supportive. He still to this day comes out to all my gallery shows, cool. anything that's going on. He comes to the, uh, transparent gallery in Asbury park, which we should talk about. Um, <laughs> Definitely. and, uh, so anyway, he was like just a great guy, you know, and he was like, um, always said to me, you know, Hey, you need anything, you know, I got you. And I was like, cool. And so, um, he would let me print in his dark room and then he started to hire me to print in his dark room. And then, uh, and then when I finished school, uh, at new England school of photography, I came back and I was like, okay, here I am. I have a degree in photography. What am I going to do? Right. And he said, listen, why are you figuring it out? I know this isn't going to be your job forever, but I had, he had built a portrait studio. So okay. he was a real great entrepreneur. He had his one hour photo here. And then you went down to he, one of the other stores spaces, you know, came up for lease. He leased another space and turned it into a portrait studio cool. where he did family photos, dog photos, engagement photos, wedding, whatever, you know? And once I finished school, the guy that was running it uh, moved on and he said, Danny, here's the deal. Here's the keys. Just, you can use the studio for whatever you want. Bring your friends in there, bring your bands in there, whatever. And, um, you know, but you'll also have to do, you know, the family portraits and dog portraits and whatever else comes through. I was like, sure, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, great. I got a job. I can, you know, and, you know, I would be there and sometimes I'd be busy, especially around the holidays. And sometimes I wasn't. So I'd be looking through Rolling Stone. I'd be looking through Interview Magazine. I started to see photographers that I that I loved, you know, Annie Leibovitz in Rolling Stone, um, you know, Herb Ritz in um, Interview Magazine and all these other photographers. And I also had photography magazines. So I'd be looking through modern photography or whatever you call it. And, you know, and in the back, there would be ads for, you know, um, workshops and, you know, different photography schools and, and whatnot. And I saw that there was a, uh, a workshop that was going to happen in Yosemite, uh, the Ansel oh, wow. Adams Gallery workshop. Cool. Right. So most people who know any photographer at all probably know who Ansel Adams is. Yeah, that's uh, that's the know. one that's uh, yeah. hanging in hanging in hotel rooms and stuff. Uh, yeah, he, he was he was a legendary guy. He was a master photographer, and he they had created a, a workshop in his honor at Yosemite where he took some of his seminal images cool. should look them up. They're gorgeous, uh, large format. So very, very detailed. And I found out that one of the instructors there was going to be Annie Leibovitz. And yeah. I thought to myself, wow, what a great opportunity. And at the time, just prior to that, my girlfriend, uh, who's my wife now, Maria had gone to study. She went to school at FIT in New York city and studied abroad and did uh, studied Shakespeare um, in London. And, and, you know, I mean, like I said, my mom went to nursing school, but aside from that, nobody went to, you know, college. Right. And I had no idea what study abroad even meant. And <laughs> I, I, and, and I was so impressed by it and I was like, I want to do something like that. And so I saved my money uh, from working and I decided I was going to take a trip and do this Ansel Adams gallery workshop cool. and then onto a friends of photography workshop, which was in Carmel, California. And I went out to, and then my plan was going to be to go to LA and try to find, um, uh, then my plan was going to be to go to LA and try to find 
um, her Brit or somebody to, to assist. Oh, wow. Try and get a job as an assistant or an intern or whatever. Anyway, the workshop went really well with Annie. And at the end of the workshop, she revealed that she was looking for an intern. Wow. Um, at her studio. And she asked me if I wanted to do it. Wow. Right and, off the um, bat, huh? Well, yeah, it was, I, you know, it was a week long workshop and I, I, I actually skipped some of the other photographers that were teaching and went to her class like twice, oh, Okay, <laughs> you know, and I really yeah, showed yeah. up and sure, was really, sure. you know, and I, and, and her, her assistant was really cool. A guy named Dave Rose and he took me under his wing sort of. And, and, uh, and so anyway, long story short, uh, I ended up getting this gig before I even did the next workshop before I even went to LA. And so it like took all this pressure off me and I was able to really enjoy the rest of that journey. Uh, and I came back to New York and I lived in Edison for a couple of months. Nice. Then, uh, <laughs> I li- and took the train in. Then I, I got some roommates in Hoboken Okay. and I lived in a basement apartment in Hoboken for many years. Um, and, uh, lived on, uh, raise pizza on mm. 18th or, or on, um, I think it was 11th and sixth Avenue at the time. I know it. Uh, and I worked, uh, for Annie Leibovitz for a year. Um, and then I worked for her agent also worked for Steven Mizell, who's a legendary fashion photographer. Uh, and I worked for him. I worked for Mary Ellen Mark, who's also considered a master photographer and, um, and really got a great education. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to be Annie Leibovitz, and I, I, I realized I wasn't going to be. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I finally thought to myself, let me just take the bits that suit my personality from each one of these right, right. great opportunities and apply them to what works for me and make my own little thing. What is it about what she did that, that made it like a little beyond your scope? What was different? What yeah. made me realize we were different? Um, you know, I think everybody who is really good at what they do has is obsessed by certain things. Yes, and sure. and it's I was fortunate to be a, find my obsession. You know, uh, and I feel bad for those who ha- who have trouble finding it. Yeah, me um, too. and I, I'm sure, obviously, the same thing happened to you. But for me. I, I ended up um, realizing like her, whatever her attention to her certain details and, and her like, like, um, you know, she might spend a whole week producing this very elaborate set um, and then, you know, go in and really shoot that whole, that one set, you know, for, she might go in and shoot that one set for, um, you know, uh, you know, many rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and, and, yeah. and just really work it, work it, work it, work it. And she had the, you know, the sort of the stamina and the focus to, to do that. And, right. and, um, you know, although what really turned me on to her work was her early, her early work, which was very documentary in nature, very, very, um, captured moment, very, you know, like a journalism type thing. And she mm. built into this amazing conceptual type work down the road that's become her trademark and is, is legendary. Um, I realized that for me, like I didn't, I, I just didn't have the sort of patience to, to go that route and to create all these big sets and to, you know, kind of be, 
you know, just produced and an over overproduced. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, no, that in just, you know, but I, me, like, I just realized that wasn't me. And so I, I took other things from her that, you know, her way of relating to people and her way of directing people and her way of, you know, make, you know, even through all that amazing production and all the, the sort of pre-production that she did, she still, the, the core of her, of her talent remains in the way she brings people together and the way mm. she captures these moments together. And that's what I took from it. So, so speaking of that, um, you know, you, you had said earlier when you were in high school and even younger that, you know, you had that ability to have friends on both sides, you know, the, yeah. the music guys, the burnouts, the jocks. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've always considered, you know, I've sat in a room with a lot of photographers and there is certainly uh an aspect where you all need to become sort of amateur anthropologists, you know, like knowing where to be in a room and how to sit with people and how to sit with their personalities to get the best things. Um, How much, uh, I was wondering like, how much does your approach change artist to artist? Like, do you, do you have a set approach to dealing with people or do you do any research prior, not only to how people look, but also kind of their personality types to, to understand like what approach you would want to take. Yeah. Um, I, I basically make a plan ahead of time based on what I know about the person. Okay. Um, and like, I, I, I basically say to myself, look, I'm going to go in and I want to get this. And if I get this, I think I'm going to be successful and I'm going to get what I need. Right. And if we can collaborate a little bit more or I can leave myself open to some spontaneity, uh, I might get something even better than what I had planned. And that's the ultimate, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, a pop star who's used to a glam squad and, you know, having two, three hours to get ready, um, right. you know, it's great. You know, like I, I'm all for it. And a I'll glam let, you know, like, squad. Them, that's a great word. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, you know, stylists and all that. And it's, that's a great, you know, it's, it's exciting because you're now collaborating with a bunch of other creative people Sure, sure. And, and it's, you know, it's great. And then, you know, you have someone who, you know, uh, has invited you into a recording studio or, or, or something like that to document, which I really love. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you play it that way, you know, and I, I do, you know, I, I do, my roots are, in the document, you know, I love, um, you know, captured moments. And, and again, when you use the word anthropology, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, I feel like I am a historian, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm going in and I'm like, I'm documenting for me, the music that is the soundtrack to people's lives that Mm. helps get them through rough times, helps them celebrate the good times. When they hear that chord, when they hear that melody, it brings them back to a time in their lives that they want to get back to, uh, you know, like all that stuff. And it's like, originally I sometimes felt like I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a music photographer, quote unquote, um, you know, uh, for some reason, you know, you, you know, and, and I, I just, I don't feel that way anymore. I, I completely embrace it. I, I love it. I feel like I've, I've captured these artists, you know, for people who don't get to be backstage you right. know, with Bruce Springsteen, you know, yeah, who yeah. don't get to sit in on the recording session, you know, 
of handwritten, you know? Uh, and so it's, it's a great, it's, to me, it's like, it's just, um, it's, it's so important. And, and I, I absolutely love it. I, I feel like I, I went off on a tangent. I forget what the question no, was. No, it's great. I mean, I, I feel like, you, you know, you view yourself as a conduit between like something you love and the yeah. people who want to see it. And that's yeah. a really beautiful and honest approach. Um, yeah. And, and you know what I, you know, you did say like, what's your approach to different, different and the research and all that. And yes. I think also, you know, you, from the fact that I do get, I try to get along with all sorts of people. I feel like I can be a bit of a chameleon sometimes. And I right. try to be, you know, transparent in a way, which is sure. where, how we got the, the, the name for the gallery in Asbury, but like try to be invisible in a way where you're, you know, you're not getting in the way of people and you're not altering what's going on in the recording studio or when someone's trying to write a set list backstage before they go on uh, and that sort of thing. And, and I think, you know, over the years, being a musician myself and uh, having played now for 25 years in the Tangiers Blues Band yeah, uh, and played, you know, now I've sat in with a bunch of different bands sure. um, over the years. It sort of also gives me a connection to people that's unique to to what most photographers have to to artists. Definitely. What? Well, so what? Out of all these years, what's like the most interesting set of circumstances, or most interesting night, or something you had to have to get the photo you wanted? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> I would say that, you know, there's, you know, it appears to be a glamorous, uh, you know, career, and it is, no, no doubt about it. Sure. But I spend a lot of time standing in a hallway at yeah, yeah. Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, waiting for the tour manager to give me the nod and say, uh, you know, Hey, go on in, you know, uh, you know, the band that, you know, you can go in now or, 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 you know, the tour manager can't even say, it's like, it's really, it's up to them. And like, I'm waiting for like Eddie Vedder to peek his head out and, and, and see that I'm there. And yeah. say, oh, hey, man, come on in. You, you want yeah, to I'm a, I'm, I know it because I'm the guy yeah. on the other side going like, hey, can I take a fucking shower first? Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And so, you know, it's uh, th- that kind of stuff where you're like, you just wait. You wait and you know if you're going to walk away to go to the bathroom that – you know, that's when the door is going to open and you're going to miss your opportunity. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. So you're hungry, you got to pee and <laughs> right, you know, right. you're waiting around, uh, you know, so, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to it. There's a lot, a lot to, um, the science, the art and science of, and it's relationships too. It's getting right. to know the tour manager. It's like yeah, yeah. you're on, you know, your side stage and you know, you turn to me and you say, uh, Hey dude, you know, you're welcome to come out wherever you want. Just make sure I don't swing around and whack you in the head. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, with this base, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, but on the other hand, I can't get in the way of the guitar tech who's bringing a guitar out to someone. And, I, yeah, and yeah. I can't, I can't get in the, in the line of sight of the monitor engineer who's making sure you guys can all hear, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like the years and years of doing this and, and being coming friends with that monitor engineer and friends with that guitar tech and, and, you know, giving that knowing, you know, you don't even have to talk to them now. You just look over at them and they just give you the nod. Yes right, or no. Right. 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 You know, uh, you know, and it's great. And, you know, a tour manager, 
manager who says, um, comes to you and says, uh, hey, man, I heard the band talking, you know, like they're having a special guest and that person's going to come in and they're going to rehearse a song. I'm sure they're going right. to want you to be there. They're going to want you to be there, you know, to capture it. And so, you know, those type of things all become part of the, uh, the art. I didn't even think about that access to like the food table. Cause I know I like, I've just gone to like my buddy's shows, you know, where I was allowed yeah. backstage, but you know, I've been on the other side. Sometimes you have, you know, 12 beers for eight people. You have one bag of chips for six, you know? So when I'm back there, I know sometimes I'm like, fuck, like I really want a beer, but I have to wait till someone <laughs> offers me one. You're just yes. a total asshole. If you just pick one out of the bucket, you'll never be asked back again. So I can imagine right. you've had some like almost <laughs> oasis, like salivating situations, staring at some <laughs> fucking craft services when you know you need the invite. Yeah. It's like some mob yeah. shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'm trying to think, uh, the, you know, I feel like, um, you were talking about, interesting moments of you know waiting to capture uh an image and um i remember i remember this is an interesting story um there's plenty there was the time that pearl jam was going to play at wrigley field and it a big a huge storm blew through and they had all these people there and you know they were making the decision along with the mayor of chicago wow saying saying do you extend our curfew and let us go on two hours late and play for two hours? Uh, or do you let 60,000 pissed off Pearl Jam fans yeah, right. back into the streets to go to the bars and be pissed, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they ended up, you know, doing it. And I ended up getting this epic shot of the band um, uh, during that set. Yeah. Uh, but also this one time I um, was on an assignment to photograph um, Missy Elliott <laughs> and I came in and she, you know, when we got there, at, you know, 12 o'clock and we were supposed to have her, you know, at one and, you know, three hours goes by and she's getting her nails done. She's getting her makeup done, you know, and we're sitting outside in the I hallway believe for her, Danny. I'm sorry. It's getting her hair did. Getting her hair did. Yeah, for Miss and, uh, Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I'm a big fan of hers, by the way. So I was, like, stoked to sit there and wait for her to come out. And I finally get word. They're like, she'll be out, she'll be out, she'll be out. And I finally get word. You know, her makeup and her nails took too long, and she doesn't have time to do this photo shoot. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. You got, you're kidding me, right? And they're like, no, she's got to run. She's got uh, this other thing she's got to do. Shit. And, uh, and so I said, listen, uh, and you know, th- my idea was I was going to get to go in the room, scout around, choose my shot, set up lights, whatever I was going to do. Of course, they wouldn't let me in the room. And she basically, I said, listen, you got to give me three minutes when she walks out that door into this hallway. Okay. And let me take a photograph. And she walks out, she looked rad. And I basically, you know, the lighting in there was terrible uh, from photography standpoints. It was like one of those puck lights that stuck in the ceiling and shined straight Uh, down. And so, so I kind of was like, I didn't know what to do. And then I saw her like walk through one of these lights and I realized she had these big, beautiful, like fake eyelashes on. Right. And, uh, and it, I saw these shadows just streaming down her face from these huge eyelashes. And I said, look, just 
stop right there and let me get this photograph of you. And I just did this portrait of her with these long shadows from these fake eyelashes going down her cheek. And, and then I just said, hold out your hands and cross them a little bit. And then I did a photograph of just her hands, which had these incredible nails. Right. You know, <laughs> she had just had her nails done. Like, you know, like I'd never seen in my life. And, uh, and I, those were my two photographs. I took them in about three minutes I and she that. walked away and I just was like, and this is pre-digital. So I didn't even know what I had gotten oh, process the film. How, t- how tense was it when you're, when you're waiting for it to come through? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And just, you know, the, 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 the sort of, uh, the energy and the, the, the anxiety and the, the rush of getting those three minutes and having to get yeah. that image is like what I, what I live for. Yeah. That's exciting. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I've been jocking you for years about the fact that you took the Tupac photo, like, yeah. you know, the Tupac photo, like, the, mm-hmm. you know, which uh, I'm incredibly impressed about. I've told you many times, like, uh, can you just tell me, what, was that like a standard day? Was, was that just a standard shoot or did anything uh, funky have to happen for that one? You know, in a way, it was it was very standard in in, a, in an interesting way, and I'll tell you why. Because a lot I had been doing a lot of hip hop at the time. I did, uh, you know, Nas' first record. Yeah. I did um, the Big L record. I did Onyx, Capone, and Noriega. Um, you know, the Redman, Dark Side. Yeah, and, you had, you yeah, had New York yeah. hip hop on lock yeah. for a period. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Heavy D and the Boys, yeah, Blue yeah. Funk. So I was doing a lot of that stuff and whether that stuff happened before or after the Tupac, which I shot in 93. Um, but most of those guys would show up, uh, red man, for example, uh, mm-hmm. showed up with a huge posse, like right, right. a big posse of people and came to my studio and, and it was a party, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, a party in which photographs were taken. It wasn't a photo shoot. Yes in which there was a party, you know, and, uh, and it was fun, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of great images, you know, uh, aside from the, the, the shots that I was taking for the packaging. But interestingly enough, this Tupac thing came up. It was for Rolling Stone. It was one of my first assignments for Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone didn't do a lot of hip hop at the time. And, um, you know, Tupac had had, I believe, you know, a film or two out and, He had a record come in and, and, uh, you know, we were photographing him and I was, you know, it was a last minute job and I decided to do it at my studio, which was in, um, in Tribeca at the time on Reed street, 65 Reed street. And, um, and he showed up and, um, he was, you know, he was on time and he was, had one guy with him. Okay. They had a bag of cl- bag of clothes and he was cool. Like he was like, you know, came in and he treated me, you know, nicely. And, you know, I, I treat everybody the same. So, sure. uh, we were, you know, he just seemed like, like pretty stoked to be there. And he was very professional. He, he, I think he understood shit. I'm being photographed for Rolling Stone. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and was like, you know, what do you need from me? You know? And I remember him, you know, rolling some blunts and, uh, you know, smoking out a bit. And, <clears throat> and we ended up, um, 
you know, he had this pretty cool jacket, custom jacket said thug life on it. And I had done a couple of photographs of that. And, you know, I did at the time I was doing this um, sort of series of images that was the, you know, which is the classic, the black and white one right. of him with the shirt off turned yes. to the side. But at the time I was shooting a lot of artists that way, very simple uh, four by five, which is a large format, okay. um, you know, lit with a lot of contrast and shadows. And I had done, and I, I still to this day, I have a whole series of, you know, New York city hip hop from that time shot this way. Very cool. And, and I decided this is a very simple, elegant document. Um, it was about less about the captured moment and more about a directed moment and a portrait. Right. And I also thought like if for any reason they wanted to put a photograph of him on the cover of, of Rolling Stone, which would be my dream scenario, yes. um, that this would be a very perfect image for the cover. Cause it's very simple. There's room for type yeah, right. and, and all that. So, uh, so anyway, as we were photographing, uh, and doing the shoot, he said, uh, you know, I got some other clothes, like maybe we should give them some more options and which is kind of a standard idea, Sure, uh, but not everybody, uh, not everybody is so yeah, up nah, for it. And, exactly, and I was yeah. like, cool. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's change it up. So he's like, Oh, cool. I'm going to put this on. And he took his jacket off. He took his shirt off. And then I saw that he had all these tattoos. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I said, wait a minute it would be great to shoot a couple of portraits of you, you know, without your shirt on. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, he was very easy to direct. He was a, you know, people that contribute in a way where they're presenting something to you, yeah. uh, is really, is really incredible. Um, and my, and my job is to, to take that. And sometimes that's enough. And then to also try to push the envelope a little bit, direct them a little bit more, um, you know, capture a moment when it all feels like you're really getting, uh, you know, everything is aligning, um, in that moment. And, and that's what it became. And, uh, it was cool. And then we went up on my roof and he smoked some more and, um, and, uh, and I shot some, you know, kind of more loose kind of documentary portraits up there. Cool, man. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was great. And, you know, the funny thing about it was, and what wasn't normal about it is, and I don't remember why, but I usually shoot the shit out of something. You know, right, it's like, right. I usually like, you know, just keep shooting, keep shooting, keep shooting until they're like, pe person's like, okay, I got to go, you know? Huh. Uh, and I, I'll have to ask my assistant at the time what he remembers, but I don't know why, but I didn't shoot a ton. Huh. You know, I shot a, a decent amount to have a bunch of different images that are incredible just because he was an incredible subject. But like, I just, I don't know why I didn't do more. Do you feel you know? like you maybe um, like, you felt like you just had it like in I did, or yeah. something? Yeah. I did. I saw the Polaroid. I mean, the black and white image of him is actually a Polaroid of which at the time there was this Polaroid called type 55. Okay. And you would get a positive, you'd peel it and you would get a positive. I mean, you probably remember it from our shoot. Yeah. Shoot yeah. 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 You'd peel it. And then, and then. I would take the negative, the, the, the backside of it, which a lot of times people would just throw away. Right. Um, and I would, I would put it in a solution, a little chemicals, or you could just really put it in water and it would clear it off and you'd have a negative right. of which you could print, you could make huh. prints from. So 
you know, um, that, uh, that's what that ended up being. And I, and I saw the Polaroid and I, I looked at it and I, pr- I thought to myself, wow, so you know, cool. this is, this is the shit right here. Yeah. That's such a cool trick. I, I, I love it. It's such a, it, it's always like the, the classic stuff comes in a very, in a very natural way, you know, a lot. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the real classic stuff comes from an organic yeah. place. Um, yeah. And, and you don't know, you know, you really don't, I mean, very, at that point in the history of hip hop and, uh, you know, I didn't know Illmatic was going to be the, the shit. Right. I didn't know Illmatic was going to be the legendary, you know, record that it has become. Yes. I mean, I loved it. it I, I was the right guy for the job because it was a very cinematic record. Sure. It was, it was, it was about where he was from and my style suited that perfectly. I had no idea, you know, six, you know, three years down the road that, you know, Tupac would be killed and yes. there would be no more images of Tupac. Right. And that this would stand out as one of the seminal images, you know? I mean, that Nas and, photo too, it's like, you know, you shot, and I wonder if it was because you were so exposed to that world and a bunch of those people that you had a better understanding of it. But to me, you look at the back of Nas Ilmatic, and that is New York hip hop style mm-hmm. of that time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like put it yeah. in a dictionary. Like, you know, the, yeah. t- the Tim's on the feet, the North Face, the haircuts, you know, the yep. way people were just like, popped out in the park like that like uh, gin juice <laughs> yeah it's just it's just like the the seminal image of that time um and i wonder if you know i hadn't realized you you did so many artists from that period at that time you must have had yeah some inclination of you know what what people were trying to portray it's cool yeah and you have to realize too you know this was not the world that i lived in so for me right. to go to uh, Queensbridge projects yeah, sure. was like, wow, this is, well, this is really interesting. And, and I got a lot of love because, you know, that's the way Nas is. And, and because, you know, I was helping or I, I was seen as a guy that was part of Nas getting out of the neighborhood and, and right. being recognized from that neighborhood. And, you know, and, and so, you know, that it was real interesting. Um, you know, to be put in that position. And I was, you know, it was, um, it was, um, MC search from third base who mm. got me the gig and bought oh, me in cool. on that project. And, wow. uh, and, you know, and then I think back, you know, people flip out, you know, when they, when they hear that I, I did that record and, and then, you know, like someone like big L, which is, that was a seminal, seminal yeah. hip hop record too. And then, you know, like Capone and Noriega OC, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I mean, I did all, I, that's, the, yeah, all these the, that's a deep cut shit too. Yeah, it is deep cut shit, <laughs> and I and, and I don't really, you know, that stuff does doesn't really. Occasionally now, because the internet works, you know, somebody <laughs> right. will tag me on like, uh, you know, the twins from from, you know, the teenagers or whatever they were called. Uh, yeah. the, the twins they were called. They were out of Atlanta. Okay, you know, and I went down and did like Dallas Austin and, you know these cats down in Atlanta and stuff. And I'm like, Holy cow, man, I forgot about that. And it's so funny to think like, cause I have a funny question to ask you, but now I think of the parallel between the two, you know, I see this one Foo Fighters photo where they're wearing three different prints of plaid shirts. 
And I'm like, there's no way Danny could have been stoked when they showed up like that, where three <laughs> out of five were wearing different color of a plaid shirt. But then is I that imagine- the one where they're laughing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's like the backstage or something. But I, yeah, you yeah. know, to think about uh, the the back of Nazilmatic to to three plaid shirts and the Foo Fighters. Yeah, you've seen it all, man. You've seen it all. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I did the first. I did the first Kanye record too. College dropout. Wow, I didn't realize yeah. that. That's great. Yeah. Um, so I have a little bit of a, a tech corner here. I have a good friend, my boy Evan Rich from back in the day. Someone who yep. also would be very impressed with your uh, hip hop acumen, old graffiti writer, but yeah, uh, he's now a professional wedding photographer from in Miami, and I uh, hit him up to see if I could get some some nerdy gear questions mm. for for people <laughs> like you. Now, one uh, thing that- I f- I found hilarious off the bat is that you know every industry once you start scratching the surface has you know shop talk, and and yeah. I joke about how long it takes for a guy to work at a venue before he starts saying, clear the deck instead of take the things off the stage. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> yeah. how long does it take to be in the industry when you start saying deck instead of stage, just to prove right. it's not your first rodeo, you know, the other thing they say yeah. every fucking minute. Um, so how long does it take when you're getting into the photography world to start calling your lens the glass? <laughs> like what kind of glass you working with like how long does it take to get to get that terminology uh, well one thing you need to know about me is i am not like a super techie guy right uh you know and i i, I just like you know i did a like a a like a stream a live stream the other day and i had to make sure that i looked at all my lenses so i knew that i had the 35 sumacron 1.4 on my Leica and make sure I didn't call it the Sumalux or the, you know, just some people know that shit and that's all that's, they care very much about that stuff. Right. I care very little about that stuff. Okay. I care about, I care about the glass for sure. Cause <laughs> Leica makes some of the best glass there is out there. Um, but you know, I, I, that's a funny question and I do like it. Um, you know, it's like I have nicknames for things or short names for things, you know, like uh, the Hasselblad would be the Hasi. Okay, um, right. My Wide Alux camera was dubbed the Wild Ox by uh, by Trey, I think. Okay, uh, from Fish, <laughs> and so I call it the Wild Ox. Like, give me the Wild Ox. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of nicknames for my cameras and stuff. So um, any assistant you have has to learn all the the nicknames of each camera. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And also like, you know, I get also caught up in things that I also expect them to read my mind when I can't even the words can't come out of my mouth as to <laughs> right, what camera right. I want. Like, give me the, 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 the and they're like the Polaroid. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Polaroid. Give me the Polaroid. You just put your hand out. Just yeah. Give, me, I give do. me the thing I need. Yeah. Give me the thing and re- read my mind. Will you? Come you got on. enough juice now. So like, um, <laughs> these days, you know, uh, Really, like when when you go into something, how do you approach like digital or film? Um, I usually rock the digital until I get into the sweet spot, and uh, okay, and you know, I mean, you, you can't go wrong if you ca- if you get the shot on digital. I mean, it's, it's com- still completely relevant. But you know, if you dig around and you get into a situation where you're doing a portrait with someone, and you're like, I almost view the digital as like like the Polaroid. 
you know? Right. It's like, let me look at this. Oh, the light's good. Oh, my exposure's good. Working it, working it, working it. This is looking good. Hey, oh, cool. Get, give me the Hussy. Right. Okay. Give me, give me my Leica. Give me, you know, let me shoot some film on this, you know? Um, and then it's like, you know, at the end of the day, I would much rather scan a film negative and, you know, and I still print digitally. I'm not, I'm not printing, I'm not going in the dark room. I, you know, you have right. so much control printing digitally, but it still has a different look to it and it's beautiful. Sure. Um, so, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and then sometimes there's just things that digital can't do, you know, like I have, um, you've seen my camera bag and you open yes. it up and you have, I have my, my Canon 5d digital camera. I have my Leica M digital. Then I have, um, I have my Leica M6, which is film. I have the wide Alexis film, Hasselblad's film. I have half frame cameras that take half of a 35 millimeter frame and I shoot them in a sequence where I feel like I might want to print them together in the end. Uh, cool. And then I shoot with a plastic camera and sometimes I won't advance the film and I'll shoot two or three exposures on that one piece of film hmm. to see what happy accident might happen, you know? Cool. Um, so, so there's, you know, that's my approach. Um, and, uh, it certainly has changed a little bit because I shoot more and more digital and, and then I just feel myself getting too complacent and too safe. And then I want to make sure that I'm like, hand me that freaking half frame camera. Yeah. You know? So, so it does have the potential to just get, get too easy and maybe pull, pull some of the former artistry you maybe used to know. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, so how did, um, how did the gallery in Asbury, uh, come about and and how long had that been a goal of yours um i um how long um beautiful gallery by the way yeah yeah you know you know what happened is you know you know as good as anybody you know asbury was shit town for such oh, yeah. a long time the artists come in the musicians come in they start to inject this underground us against them mentality. Um, you know, it's like cheap rent. I can't believe we're able to hang here right Right. near the ocean in this great old architecture, you know, um, then, you know, like the gay and lesbian community kind of come in and they got some money and they're like, wow, look at these old Victorians, you know, that's like, let's buy these and I'll buy this house. You buy the one next to it. And so what we're in a shitty neighborhood, but we'll keep to ourselves and we'll get these beautiful. And then it just snowballs like that, you know? And then people start to see that, wow, has there's this really been a a town on the, on the ocean that (laughs) is just sitting here dormant with like low, low rent and low. And then all of a sudden it all changes and it becomes what everybody sort of secretly had hoped it would become. But then, some people hate it and some people love it. And yeah. now we're in a place where it's happening. There's great restaurants. There's great art galleries. There's great music venues, great bands. It's incredible. There's see here now there's, you know, all this, you know, two new hotels and, and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's firing on all cylinders. And then of course we have COVID, um, <laughs> right. but aside, you know, but COVID aside, um, you know, couple four 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 years back uh you know things were starting to starting to come into into focus and somebody hit me up and said hey we have this space um uh you know at the asbury hotel uh that's empty and we would like to put a pop-up 
store there, yeah. a pop-up gallery there of your work. Would you be interested? And this was um, iStar, the, the you know the the developers who have put the Asbury Ocean Club and right. redid uh, Asbury Lanes and 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 built the uh, the hotel there, the Asbury Hotel with Salt Hotels. And so this is this could, is the company that some of the punks down there kind of consider the enemy to a point. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and you know, I understand that point of view yeah. and that, that state of mind. They've been nothing but good to me. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, I can just say that they've supported me as an artist sure. and, and they, and they've, and, and basically what happened was we, we, we put this place together and I said, look, you know, I want to, I want to have a place that's, I don't want a white glove gallery where people come in and it's all clean. And, you yeah. know, I want a community space where we can bring in our friend Tina Karekis, who badass, has, you know, who's a badass. Who's like, and, who's by the way, is like my 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 wife's uh, muse and and mentor from like twenty years ago that I didn't even learn until you know we right. came into the shop and realized she worked there. Um, yeah, what, what a cool coincidence that was. Yeah, and not surprising. She's a mentor to a lot of people. Yeah, and she had a mid-century modern store, and she lost her lease right okay. when we were doing the gallery. And right. my wife Maria, um, and you know, and I were hanging out with her over at her spot, and this opportunity came, and we said, "Hey, we need someone to run the gallery. Why don't you bring all this furniture that you're selling? Right. Bring it into the gallery. You can sell it there." And we're going to put up a back line. We're going to get a drum kit, a bass Perfect. amp, some yeah. bass, you know, and we're going to pull this place together. And we did. And before you know it, um, Rachel Anna Dobkin was hanging out there, a local musician. She was playing there often. We were bringing all these other people into play. She was bringing all her friends, introducing me to all these bands that um, that she knew from being a big part of the scene in Asbury, you know, Mercury Brothers, um, you know, Low Light. Cranston Dean, like all these cool like people, uh, Pam Flores, Tara Dente, uh, and like all these people started to come and hang out and play music at the gallery. And next thing you know, our three months are up, and and the people at at iStar were like, "Wow, this is amazing!" Mm. You know, you want to let it ride? Cool. And I and I, I was like, "Yeah!" And okay. so here we are you know, four years down the road <laughs> and yeah. we literally, we've done, you know, we've done um, a lot for the music community there. And we've given sure. these artists a place to play where actually, you know, and you know, as good as anyone, when you're scrapping it out, you know, in the, in the bars uh, and I love the saint and I love the yacht club and I yeah. love all these places, but people are there to socialize, to make noise, to hang out, to drink, they're not always listening to the band. Sure. And, and that, you know, you learn a lot from that and you hone your chops there. And oh, I yeah. love going to those places, but when they come to the, to the gallery, people are like, Oh my God, this is my favorite place to play. Cause uh, people right. are actually standing there. Sure. Listening. Yeah, Nobody's talking in the, if people are talking in the back, people in, in the front are turning around and they're going, yo, keep it down back there. If you want to have your conversation, you can go outside Danny, this is a, it's amazing. You're such a nice guy. You like created a mini Canada, like inside of the U.S. You know, like, like <laughs> a nice, Canada, nice, funny. respectful place for everyone to play and listen to music. That's awesome. Man. So it's become that, and then we have we 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 have like, you know, 
some of the local charities come in and and do fundraisers there. Um, we've had a lot of a lot of real positive, uh, you know, things happen there and continue to happen there. And mm. my wife Maria and I and and Tina, um, and we have a friend uh, Jesse there who's helping out. And it's become this community of the people. You know, I got to be honest, people are going to need it more than ever when this uh, whole thing lifts. Yeah, and especially yeah, I just heard the Saint is uh is closing its doors after yeah uh, X I heard that. Of time, which is super sad. There's it's definitely gonna be uh you know, but it's it's the way it works. I've been in this scene in New Jersey long enough to see some cities go, some cities stop, some towns go, some of them stop, and there's just this massive cycle all the time. Even in New York City, you know. The neighborhoods we started going to shows in when you were younger are different now, and different places pop up. It's like, the fuck, are you gonna do? You know, you keep hanging yeah. on to that stuff. You're gonna, you're gonna live a painfully long life. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. You know, and people will complain. Somebody pointed this out to me, and you know, I appreciate what the lanes brought to Asbury Park. Hundred percent. You know? Yeah. And and especially in the punk rock days when you could see you know, three bands for five bucks. Um, and that was awesome. But somebody pointed out to me, which I didn't really realize, um, it, it, it only lasted for like a, a year or two, right? Like that whole moment was not really that long. And I'm not an expert and I, I could be wrong. Someone, you know, could. Yeah, I would have uh, to, I'd have to stop you on that one. That is definitely wrong. Um, oh, really? Yeah, for sure. Like the, the good Asbury Lanes thing between, you know, the local punks running the food service, running the bar, DJ nights and booking shows. Yeah, I would say that lasted a close to 10 years, if I had to oh, guess. Wow. Okay, um, my bad. Yeah, yeah. So that that's where, you know, I, I've heard it from both sides. You know what I mean? I've played yeah. the old Asbury Lanes, and I've also played fucking Stone Pony Landing. You know what I mean? So... You yeah. could call me punk or you could call me a capitalist. Like, I don't fuck, you know, take your pick. Um, right. But it's uh, it's just the constant shifts. You can't keep fighting. And if you want to if you want to actually provide things that people need and you want to keep being creative and keep doing cool shit, you have to move with it a little bit, you know, you um, or else you you're going to get stuck. So Right. And, you know, and I think that, you know, well, yeah, yeah, I. I you know what I thought was cool is um, we were part of the uh, reopening of the lanes and there was a lot of, there was a lot of chatter about it and sure. stuff. And, and um, Tangier's blues band uh, played and Portugal, the man played. And, and, cool. and I, I, I presented a lot of, uh, I presented a lot of bands to, to join us that day. Uh, Gaslight being one of them. Yeah. And I, I don't, who knows why or whatever at the time, why it didn't work out. But, but, um, anyway, Springsteen decided to come out and be a part of it. And, and he actually ended up sitting in with Tangier's Blues Band, which was one of the highlights of my life. And, um, that's awesome. And, but, but what I really admired about him, and he does have a way with, you know, he, he, he knew what the people, what the punks did at the lanes like he knew right. he was aware yeah, of it. yeah sure and he honored them in his opening statement you know when he talked about the lanes That's he was cool. like i want to honor the people who who made the lanes you know and gave it the reputation that it has 
Uh, and I thought that was really cool. And I thought that was really, you know, an awareness that he had that, that that's honestly surprised me, but didn't surprise me. Cause yeah, that's cool. That's well, his, his, kid, yeah. his kid knew a lot about that music, which, which was awesome. I think it gave that's him a, a good window into some of the stuff that, that we were doing. I mean, I always try yeah. to think of it in this context. It's like, you know, uh, I, I think people do have a little bit revisionist history sometimes for, for the bad parts, you know, and, I, I remember right. literally the first time I went to Asbury Park, you know, I'm from central Jersey. I barely knew this place existed until, you know, uh, music scenes started coming into my life. And mm-hmm. I went with a friend of mine randomly to see 311 at the Stone Pony. This is probably 1994, 93 or 94 or something. And, uh, and literally my first experience with Asbury Park was walking out of my friend's old red Ford Escort. And uh, a local man holding a little lead pipe, basically telling us a lot of cars have been broken into these days. And if you give me ten dollars, I'll make sure your car is okay while you're in the show. (laughs) You know, I already knew this scam. So I'm like, all right, if we don't give this guy ten bucks, this fucking window is done by the time we get out of the show. So we better scrape it up, you know. (laughs) And, you know, even though I can say that story with a little bit of charm now, I was a fucking terrified 15 year old in a place that was scary. Like when I think about CBGBs and the places I used to go in Lower East Side or Pipeline and Studio One in Newark that I used to go to shows in, like I was not in good situations. They were dangerous situations and there was a lot of bad stuff attached to it. And there was also a lot of people doing unsavory things and, and, you know, it's just, it's easy to remember the rough times in a very revisionist way, I would like to say. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so we've been going a long time. We've got to close it up soon. I have one yep. question that I need answered from you. I've been asked a million times what the Jersey Shore sound is in interviews. like, And, you know, being like what I even just prefaced with you, when I was growing up, I thought the Jersey Shore sound was like the nerds and like big cover <clears throat> bands playing at bars in Seaside and Belmar. And I've never even <clears throat> really known what to tell people. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I guess it's a rock band with a saxophone. I don't fucking know. So, <laughs> like, can you help me be able to explain, like, what the Jersey Shore sound is? Um, I mean, my opinion of it. Um, I would love to hear Tim Donnelly explain it because he probably right. he'd yeah. probably really nail it. Uh, I I feel like it's you know I, I think of the early Springsteen and, and I know it's like that's low hanging fruit, but <laughs> but it's true. You know, you right. think of Springsteen, Southside. You think of these bands were um, they they grew up, you know in the late sixties and early seventies and their influences were, um, you know, like some of the great R and B that came out of Detroit, you know, that came out of Chicago and, you know, it was, had some blues in it. Um, but it had a lot of soul, you know, it was soul Mm. music. Right. Right. That's what I feel is, is what the Jersey shore sound is. It's soul music that's come up through the, the lens and the voice of white blue collar 
kids who who filter it through um their interpretation of of what that is mm. you know I, I, you know and, and you think you know and then and then i i think you know bon jovi is obviously younger than bruce and and Southside, but so i feel like it, the root of it is in like that 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 sort of Southside springsteen um bar band blue r&b and blues that's you know that's that's the way i you know and i'm trying to think of like back to some of the documentaries i've seen of of springsteen sort of explaining it you know and what he wanted his band to be and and why he wanted um why he wanted a a horn section right right um but you know you got to give props also also to little steven who was like writing those horn parts and stuff right right and so you know that's what i think the jersey shore sound is in the traditional sense so uh, is it nowadays, safe is it safe to just say bruce springsteen then like can i just make it easy when i have to answer this question they're like can you explain the jersey shore sound i just go uh bruce springsteen and everything he did <laughs> like i could make it easier well, you, know? you could make it easy with that i mean <laughs> i you know uh again you know I, I think you could you could make it easy, Bruce and Southside. You know, yeah. listen to those records and you'll and you'll get it immediately. Yeah, uh, it's you know, it's 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 loud, it's rocking, it's sweaty, and uh, you know, it's soulful. I love it. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, Danny, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. It was a nice um, balance between music and photography and uh and that sort of thing so all right well the jersey shore sound <laughs> i still don't know i don't know Brad. but you do know <laughs> i mean it's still so confusing like if you asked me at a certain point in my life i literally there is this band called the nerds do you remember the nerds yeah, from like, like an enormous from way like, cover back, band. like the eighties. Yeah, they they dressed like as nerds with like cut off dress up shirts and I like the so. big rim glasses with tape. Yeah, and they were a cover band, like a super popular cover band who would sell out bars and clubs like down in at the Jersey Shore. And honestly, at that point, like that's what I thought it was. Thought it was cover bands. I thought it was like <laughs> like this, you know, uh, big solo cup beer oversliced oversized pizza you know cover band scene like that's really what i thought it was and then you know the bouncing souls moved to asbury and and i'm like oh okay like there's a punk thing going on down here you know but i don't think that's what people mean by the jersey shore sound (laughs) and then i can only find two bands ever to reference which are just bruce springsteen and Southside johnny yeah so i'm pretty sure at this point (laughs) anyone in the world who says the jersey shore sound is just talking about those two bands, I'm, I'm almost certain at this point. I, I confess that that's what I assume. Yeah. That's what I, I mean, hear. I mean, and Danny pretty much confirmed it, and he knows more than I do. So, But I did want to talk. I know we had a little jump in that interview, you know, where Danny talked about the Asbury Lanes and the fact that, you know, they paid some tribute to it. But, you know, I guess someone through the course of this had told them Asbury Lanes was only open for a year or something. And I do think that that kind of was a microcosm for what happened down there. I mean, there is a major disconnect between 
the people who ran that place for a really long time and what happened when it was taken over. You know, I mean, it was literally a super mom and pop type of thing. The people who ran it had their hands all over it. Um, and a giant real estate developer named iStar is the one who bought it, promised to keep it a music venue. But of course, certain things happen. A larger promotion company takes over and essentially anyone who was part of that place was no longer a part of that place. And I really don't want to come off as some like warrior uh, as far as like things never need to change. I mean, literally, my family is you know, born and raised in New York City, many generations, neighborhoods that were good in the 70s are now bad, bad and now good. Right. I lived in New Brunswick when it gentrified. I live in Jersey City when it gentrified. Like, I'm starting to just, as an old man, just consider this the ebb and flow of places. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and there is like a romance to it because it was dangerous and small and cool and not a lot of people were part of it. I mean, so so to let you know, I mean, you know, Asbury Lanes is on Fifth Avenue in the very famous Little Eden, which, you know, Pete from Bouncing Souls has a studio in. And the, you know, the queen of, of Jersey punk herself, Kate Hiltz, owns this house. Right. And, you know, that house was intrinsically tied to the Asbury Lanes. Like, you know, people walk to the lanes, walk back to her house. It was like this tiny little scene they created for themselves down there. And then more and more and more people started coming. And before you know it, like you go to the lanes and you're with like 50 people, you know, who all rode in on their bikes and they have a tofu grilled cheese sandwich and the show ends. And there's like an awesome punk rock dance party. And like, it was their fucking place. And it was the uh, pinnacle punk rock venue in South Jersey for like the last 20 years, you know? So, from their side, I completely understand when it when it broke down and people were furious about it. You know, the same company that bought it bought 50 bowling alleys for hundreds of millions of dollars and, you know, obviously was turning it into something different. But that being said, you know, I was in Asbury six months ago and uh, had a night away from the kids and I stayed at the Asbury Hotel and yeah, it's foofy, but it's nice. Asbury never had a nice hotel for people before. And Danny's gallery is awesome. And, uh, you know, he does shows there. And, and there's a musical element of it living on because of that. And and people just tend to blame the wrong people. That's the thing that bothers me is like, you want to blame anyone for Asbury, blame the politicians and the developers who like, let rich out of town money overrun that place, but don't blame the people who are actually creating new things and creating art. Like we're still on the same team, you know? So that's just my little thing about Asbury lanes. I felt like we, we glossed by it in the interview. And I mean, honestly, part of this was just like my punk rock fear. I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> did I stand up for my crew enough? Or am I going to get in trouble? And and in really, I don't have a huge dog in the fight. It's not my town. Yeah, I played there a bunch of times. I hung out there a bunch of times. But, you know, it happened. There's nothing I could do about it. But I understand both sides. And when I went there recently, I had a very nice, greasy meal from some nice ladies who served it to me. And I don't want to go through life hating anyone, you know? So I liked it the way it was. It's fine the way it is It is now. That's That's all I got to say about it. Asbury Lanes. Did you ever go? Did you no, ever make it down there? No. I mean, it's a cool place, man. Literally, 
you had a stage just decked out over like four lanes that was set up, you know, right. pretty normal. You could bowl to each side of it. You know, they it had sounds this little awesome. It was great, man. It really was. It was a truly, truly cool place. Uh, and I miss it. Wow. But anyway, that, that was the story of that. But I do think people should go to Danny's gallery because it's amazing. Like you said, you could just see these like blown up pictures of, um, you know, the coolest, most iconic stuff. And also, I think we mentioned in the interview, the woman, Tina, who, who runs uh, Transparent Gallery, was my wife's first boss and kind of like one of her first style icons. She's just like a super cool, charismatic person with great style. So Danny's got a very, very awesome team over there as well. That's Transparent Gallery. It's on Fifth Street in Asbury, connected to the Asbury Hotel. Danny's got social medias, believe it or not. He's uh, dannyclinch.com, website, dannybone64 on Instagram, Danny Clinch himself on Twitter. I don't know if there's any more. Are there, there's probably more social medias now, right? Uh, Are we old? Are we doing like the old ones? Ugh. Am I supposed to be giving away TikToks? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Danny's got a TikTok? You know what? He's pretty good at staying hip. If he doesn't get one, someone who works for him is going to make one right, or something. Right. Like he's he's smart about that. <laughs> he's going to have one before I do. Guarantee that. What do you think happened to MySpace pages? Like, I never deleted it. Where did mine go? There, I think they're there, dude. <laughs> yeah. Somebody. I just went to MySpace recently. By recently, I mean sometime in the last six months. I'm almost positive that I went. I looked at a MySpace page. Somebody, I was looking for a like an old band or somebody, and maybe it was one of these bands that I just released. And I was looking, and I and I, the only link I found was to a MySpace page. All right, did you see where your top eight was? No, <laughs> dude, I forgot all about that shit. It was like the the first time to make. Most of your friends Should I pull feel it really right bad now? about themselves. MySpace.com. Yeah. Let's see. MySpace slash Brad Goops. Oh, it's here, dude. <laughs> All right. You know what? Let me look here. <laughs> Ooh, there's like a weird Goops page here. This there's is nothing, strong podcast material right now. There's nothing on it. <laughs> you know what I learned in uh, Podcast Course 101? Is to do Google searches while you're recording. Don't it's really interesting for people. <laughs> Jonah's going to kill you for that. You should fucking sign up for his class. Goddamn. Oh, All my right. God. All right. Well, Let's we can wrap stop. it. We. Uh, I just want to thank... Oh, I don't have their names. There's a couple. We got a couple more Venmos this week. I appreciate it. We, Thank I you still so much. fully intend to launch um, a Patreon very soon. So keep your eyes on our accounts. And um, you can always go to goingofftrack.com or goingofftrack, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, but yeah, thanks to the, the new, the, the recent um, Venmos that we got. If you're interested in giving us a couple bucks, um, it's Venmo at off track. Um, we can always use it. We appreciate it. And we'll yeah. start giving back soon. Thanks. No, Daddy's got holes in his shoes. <laughs> it's actually true. You don't need shoes. Like in, shit. You don't need shoes in Cancun, man. Yeah. I've been wearing like literally like I have like five things I've been wearing for the last seven weeks. I, I look like crazy. <laughs> People in wherever I am, you know, Baja, Mexico, they, they, they think I'm like, 
like Daniel Day Lewis just walked off like the There Will Be Blood set. <laughs> I just look crazy. That's like a good look. Stick with dirty it. Old oil man. Nobody will mess with you, man. Drainage, Brad. <laughs> Drainage. All right. So next week, I'm really excited about our guest. Everyone, stay tuned for the At Home series. Thanks for the cash. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thanks, right. Benny. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.